the focus should be like you know there was the stuff and maybe you're not as into it as you used to be but as long as you are accepting of what your taste used to be i think you're doing okay no yeah right like i'm not really like as cringy as i might find some of that stuff now i guess like i'm not proud of it but like i'm not ashamed of it either uh-huh. Like it doesn't it's like it doesn't really matter what I was into. It's just that like that's what me and my friends were into. That's how we uh-huh. established a community, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not that like for example, like because I watched the BBC Sherlock at, at the same time that the CBS TV show Elementary was coming out and like I literally thought that anybody that watched Elementary was so stupid. But like it's a fine show. Like <laughs> Like, I had never even seen it, like, right? Like, I don't mind that I was into BBC Sherlock. I mind that I was antagonistic to other people that were not. Yeah. But also, yeah. like, you know, you were a teenager and you were learning about life. Yeah, exactly. Um, and no, and that's what I'm and saying. That, yeah. that, that experience now informs your decisions when you, you know, when you look at something that you don't necessarily like, that doesn't mean that you are as critical of the fan base as you are about that piece of media, right? Yeah, totally. Welcome to Screenwalkers, a brother-sister podcast where we, the walkers, tell you what's on our screens. My name is Becca. And I'm Josh. So the first matchup, I'm so excited the Pacific Rim is at the top of the mashup today, just because like, it's the one of these films that I watched the most recently. I literally watched it yesterday, <laughs> so I so have so many fresh your, thoughts. Yeah. You can get all your rants out now. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Pacific Rim is a 2013 American science fiction monster film directed by Mexican film director Guillermo del Toro uh, and written by him and Travis Beecham uh, based off of a story created by Travis Beecham uh, starring Charlie Hunnam, Idris Elba, Rinko Kikuchi, Charlie Day, Robert Kaczynski, Max Martini, and Ron Perlman. Uh, Real basic plot of this film uh, is that Kaiju monsters start emerging from this big breach in the Pacific, and humanity creates giant mecha robots to fight them. It's the best of, like, 80s anime all thrown in together. It's so good. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, you've seen this film, right? No, I've not seen this film. You haven't seen this film? Oh, I'm kind of surprised no. at that, honestly. Because okay. I, remember, yeah. I remember when it came out, I thought I was very dismissive of it. Yeah. I was like, this is Iron Man meets Godzilla. This is not <laughs> worth my time. And, yeah. you know, I was a wee lad back in. Uh, it was 2013, so you would have been, what, 15? I think so. Yeah, because I, I think I was 17 when this film came out. Yeah. So I was back in high school. You know, I didn't really care about things like critic scores or what other people were saying about it. Mm-hmm. And you know it wasn't appealing to me, so I didn't watch it. 
Yeah, honestly, same. This was kind of before I realized, like, the true artistry of Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> yeah, Guillermo del Toro is great. But, <laughs> Everything I've I need to like expand more into his or his filmography. Because everything uh -huh. literally that I've ever seen by him, I have loved. And like I love his attitude towards filmmaking. Like he's just a great director. And like he has he such is. an interesting like like philosophy in filmmaking. Uh -huh. And I think it's it's great. Um the, anyway, uh <laughs> so yeah, I I should have paid more attention to this film. But the reason I started paying attention to this film was uh God forgive me, we were talking about my old high school days when I was like where I was on uh, Tumblr Lite, or uh, as the businesses oh. like to call it, Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this one, I was like 17, 18, right? Uh, like, I don't know, like Baby's first film critique mm -hmm. was starting to like be like something that I was interested in. I obviously, I didn't have like the experience that I do now in dissecting stories. And mm -hmm. like, I was very much bad at it um but uh one of the things that really got me interested in film theory at first was this tumblr post that showed up on pinterest a lot um that they call a tasting menu of re female representation uh the username is ci hilbert i don't know who that is thank you tumblr user ci hilbert um but it had this list of five different feminist film theory representations the first one was the bechdel test uh, there's one that's the sexy lamp which is uh, if you can replace a character with the sexy lamp from a Christmas story uh, and the plot doesn't change, then it's she's not a good character. <laughs> There's the antifreeze, which is like the the kind of the antithesis to the, the fridging problem in like comic books, right? It's mm -hmm. she um there's not a single woman that is assaulted, injured, or killed to for this the story of another character, et cetera. One of the ones that they included in this was called the Makomori test. Uh, which is at least one female character with her own narrative art that is not about supporting a man's story. And I never understood why it was called the Makomori until, like, maybe three or four years later, when, like, I actually, like, I was hearing somebody talk about Pacific Rim in, like, an extended sense, and they said the name Makomori, and I was like, oh, that's where that comes from. <laughs> and then I was like, maybe I should give Pacific Rim a shot. So that's why it went on the bracket, so that it would give me a chance to actually watch it, right? Um, yeah. And I really, I actually really like Pacific Rim. Um, there's no way to do this. It's a, I just have to rip the bandaid off. So, like, nothing about Charlie Hunnam's performance as Raleigh stood out to me. Um, the story also is pretty milquetoast. I do like that, um, like, the, like, his emotional arc of, like, having to overcome his brother's death. I think that that's really interesting. And I think it works. I just, I feel like if it was not necessarily a different actor, maybe if the writing had been a little bit tighter, that it would have been far more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay, because it gives uh, Rinko Kinkuchi a chance to shine as Mako, who, she is wonderful. Um, <laughs> I loved, like, I've seen Rinko Kinkuchi in one other film besides this, and that was in the film Babel. She's great mm -hmm. in Babel, too. Um Makomori like is just kind of this like brick wall at first, but as she and uh Raleigh start to bond, like that was my favorite part of the film was their bond. And that's like what the whole film is about, right? It's about their being drift compatible together, being able to sync up in the machine so that they can fight the monsters together. 
and it's done really well. Um, and the one I really, really loved, uh, the thing that I really loved about this film was Raleigh immediately goes to bat for her. I have to explain this. In the film, um, <laughs> Raleigh and his brother are the drift-compatible pilots driving the mechs to be able to go kill the monsters. They are fighting yeah. a kaiju one day, and uh, his brother is killed, and Raleigh survives. Um, but he is still hooked up to his brother while he dies, so he can like feel him die. Right? It's kind of really uh -huh. like scarring and stuff. Five years later, Raleigh is like working, like he's not a pilot anymore, obviously. Yeah. And um, but he's called back up by Idris Elba's character. Idris Elba also has a very good performance in this film um, mm -hmm. as the marshal. The names in this film are so funny to me. Uh, like Idris Elba's name is Stacker Pentecost. Uh, there's <laughs> Hannibal Chow. Uh, Tenda Choi, Herman Gottlieb, Yancey, and Raleigh Beckett. Like the names are just out of this world. It's great. Um, <laughs> that sounds like something from Solid Snake. Literally, right? Like Marshall Stacker, Pentecost, Snake. Yeah. Snake. Yeah. And this is this is Konami sub yeah. <laughs> doing subterfuge into the. I mean, it's a very Japanese-inspired film. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. Yeah, but so Idris Elba calls Raleigh up and is like. Hey, the Jaeger program, the Jaegers are what they call the mechs. The Jaeger program is on its last legs. We've restored your old fighter, whose name I'm not going to say, by the way, because uh, it's just a modified spelling of a slur for the Romani people. We're not going to say that here. No, thank you. You can look it up if you really want to know. Uh, Mako is kind of the marshal's uh, like adopted daughter slash like prodigy, almost. Uh, she, she was very, very young when the kaiju first attacked Tokyo. They, they attacked Tokyo first. She was like the only survivor of her family during that first attack. And uh, Idris Elba's character is the one that rescued her. And so, like, he kind of took her in and was raised her, all that. And he's very protective mm -hmm. of her. But, like, not in a traditional way where, like, she, he is obviously afraid that she's going to get hurt, but it's not in the way that. It's because, like, oh, she's a woman. She's so fragile, right? It's that she has, she carries so much anger around uh, the kaiju and, like, wants to get vengeance for her family on them. And he mm -hmm. knows from his own experience as a Jaeger pilot that if she goes into um, the drift, is what they call it, this, like, kind of mind space where the pilots are able to interact and then interface with the machine. Idris Elba knows that if Rink or that if Makomori goes into the machine with this anger and this vengeance, that it is going to end in like disaster. And it almost does. The very first time uh -huh. that they ever drift is like Mako gets lost in her memories and she almost uh, detonates uh, the Jaeger's nuclear core like right there in the hangar, which is not great. Um, <laughs> Like Idris Elba knows this and knows that Mako being a pilot is potentially extremely dangerous. Uh, he decides that no, she is not going to be a candidate for Raleigh's co-pilot. Um, but almost as soon as Raleigh meets Mako, he's just like, well, why aren't you... Like, I can, like he can tell immediately that they are going to be drift compatible. And mm -hmm. um, it turns out that they are. And he rejects all of the other candidates. He fights very, very passionately for her to become his co-pilot. And it's so refreshing. Like, it's such a good male-female friendship in film. And, like, the great thing about it is that it's not romantic necessarily. Like, it, there's a little bit of romantic subtext, especially at the end. 
But like, if you don't want to like pay attention to that, like, it's fine. Like, they don't ever kiss. They're intimate, like physically intimate with each other. Like, they like touch foreheads sometimes, and like they hold hands. Mm-hmm. But like, it is not necessarily romantic in any way. Yeah, and like, so that's kind of what brought my interest to this film was that idea that Mako is a character with her. Uh, she is named. She has her own arc that she goes through, and she is written in such a way that. Like her, like it's just it's just good writing, right? You know, it's like people ask all the time, "How do you write good women?" This is how you write good women: just treat them like people. Like, give them motivations, give them backstories. Don't worry too much about the fact that they're a woman; and it'll sort itself out. Like, it's really good. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, it's a good film. I really liked it. Um. I don't know how I felt about Ron Perlman being there. He was pretty funny. He's more of like a joke character. Surprise standout Charlie Day is the scientist. I have <laughs> seen like one episode of It's Always Sunny. Uh-huh. Uh, and like he kind of plays into that same frenetic energy a little bit. But it's, yeah, very funny. Charlie Day is kind of underrated, I think. So nice. it's actually really funny the way that I'm thinking about Charlie Hunnam's character in this. Because, <laughs> like, because that's most like women in film, right? Is that it's like they're just kind of there for most of it, and it's the relationship to like the main guy that like really like makes them a character or whatever. But it's exactly yeah. the opposite in this. Like, mm-hmm. Makamori is like a great, fully realized character, and it is Raleigh's friendship with her that like really elevates the text. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really fascinating. It's a cool little inversion. Anyway, I'm so sorry, Charlie Hunnam. I really didn't. Like, I didn't dislike you. I just... (laughs) I'm digging myself in an even bigger hole. I'm going to shut up now. Uh, The other Pacific Rim is going up against uh, Legally Blonde, which uh, the reason I decided to put these two films together is these, uh, I called them my uh, surprisingly feminist films, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. Like the, the like the like the films that you look at and you wouldn't be like oh well I wouldn't expect that to have been like the best film for like female representation uh-huh. but here we are um, Legally Blonde is a 2001 American comedy film directed by Robert Luketic uh, and scripted by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith from a novel of the same name which nice. I didn't realize that's fun. Uh, that's stars Reese Witherspoon, Luke Wilson, Selma Blair, Matthew Davis, Victor Garber, and Jennifer Coolidge. And it's, it's like, have you, have you seen Legally Blonde at all? Do you know what this is about? I haven't. I keep mistaking it for other movies. So since you haven't actually seen this one, let me explain to you what it's about. Um, so Elle is in like her senior year, I think, uh, at, I believe it's USC. It's some school in California. And she's getting like a degree in fashion merchandising, things like that. She's very much the very, very stereotypical sorority girl, especially like via like 2000, 2001-ish. It's very much like entrenched in the culture of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Elle, I, as uh, she is dating this guy named Warner, who's like, very old money, like big family, that kind of thing. I think he's got like the third in his surname. Yeah. Uh, he, she is hoping that her boyfriend Warner is going to propose to her. But when they go to <laughs> this fancy restaurant where they're going to go, uh, he instead breaks up with her because he's about to go to Harvard Law and he cannot have like, like he doesn't think that she would make a good law school wife. Like he, right? He yeah. doesn't want a trophy wife. He wants like 
like a power couple, like uh, also uh-huh. a lawyer kind of wife. And so yeah. in order to win him back, she decides, okay, let's do this. And she applies and gets into Harvard Law. It's so good. <laughs> the way she does it is so funny. She does like this video essay where she's like in a bikini the entire time. And you get to see it cut between like this audition tape of hers, the nomination board. Like they're just watching like Slack job. Oh it's all gosh. these like 50, 60 year old men just like not uh-huh. really knowing how to process this. It's very funny. <laughs> and so she gets into Harvard Law and uh, starts uh, competing at a very high level uh, with the rest of her classmates. And it's all about, it's so interesting in the way that it doesn't ever talk down to Elle's interests. Mm-hmm. Like everything that she does with her fashion, her like her clothing choices, uh, everything that she's interested in, like her nails and her hair, she's very like interested in her appearance, but not for like vanity's sake. It's just because she genuinely loves doing these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and it's never talked down to like, there's like the very first day of school she is kind of humiliated when like she didn't read the summer text so she's not prepared to answer the discussion questions in class she walks out just absolutely humiliated and you see her storming down in her pink convertible to uh just like a nail salon in like this harvard uh or this um like massachusetts strip mall uh, and like you, th- and you instinctively think that it's going to be like her kind of like still being out of her element, right? That she's going to walk into this place and be like absolutely disgusted at like how like the nails are being done, whatever, or mm-hmm. like she's just going to realize that like this nail salon is like just two bit and she's not going to have any fun. No, she immediately walks in. She befriends Jennifer Coolidge's character, who again, like I said a couple episodes ago. Love Jennifer Coolidge. We stand. She's great. Like it's she's Elle is so genuine in her interests and what she loves and in her passions that that is what propels her through the film. And it's like it's it's so cute and it's done really well. Um, and it's it's very refreshing. And I think that's why I put this on this uh, like surprisingly feminist films list is because uh-huh. when this film came out in two thousand one, this is exactly the kind of thing like we were right in the center of this. Like this film is so steeped in like the culture of the time that you expect it to be kind of like ironic about it or like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like I, I like, irony culture was such a huge thing in 2001. Mm-hmm. That that's exactly what you expect going into this film. That film, it doesn't do that at all. It's very sincere about the message. It, well, Elle is very sincere in what she does. There are some things that you kind of roll your eyes at, like when Elle is called in to do her first trial, the way that she gets the upper hand on, the way she does it is by uh, realizing that the guy is gay because he's got like these certain pair of shoes, right? Or no, mm-hmm. because he judges her shoes because they're out of season. And she's just like, well, straight men don't know shoes. He must be gay. Like, uh-huh. Like there's a, there's a little bit of that. It's like it kind of works off of stereotype, but even in that moment, yeah. it's to mm-hmm. help L get a foot up. And yeah, it's to show that she's clever and she is thinking through this thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Like she's it shows that her like her unconventional way of thinking is mm-hmm. what's going to put her up in the lawyer in like the law world, right? Yeah. And it's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Yeah, that's all I have to say. It's fun. Nice. Um, yeah. I like it a lot. It seems surprisingly wholesome. Yeah, surprisingly wholesome film. It's yeah, uh 
I will. Um, there. No, yeah, it's good. It's a wholesome film. I'm not gonna say anything else. It's. I like it a lot. It's good. Nice. Okay. So, which one do you think wins? Ooh, it's a hard question. Um. It also has Linda Cardellini. Honestly, I'm gonna go with my gut here, and I'm gonna say that Legally Blonde because I had like <laughs> I like specific rim. I think I just like Legally Blonde more. Uh huh. So okay, is this another attempt to make me watch a movie that you want me to watch? I mean, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, because you haven't seen either of these, so you'd have to watch either That's one of them true. anyway. So. I'd have to watch one anyway. Um, you've seen our next one though, so yes, yes, I'm so excited. And in case uh, I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Good night, yes. That's right, folks. Our next one is The Truman Show. Uh, a 1998 psychological satirical comedy drama film directed by Peter Weir, uh, starring Jim Carrey, Laura Linney, and Noah Emmerich, Natasha McElone, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, Holland Taylor, and Ed Harris. Uh, Josh, do you want to talk a little bit about this film since you've seen it? Sure. Let me recall. Uh, so actually, let me kind of get some information from you first. Mm. Uh, what made you put it on the bracket? Uh, I love this film. Um, there are a few films in my life that I've just like walked into seeing with like very little to no context. And like mm-hmm. I end up being surprised at how much I like it. This is kind of one of those films. Um, the very first time I ever saw this was, I think, downstairs in our grandparents' basement. Not the grandparents yeah. that we watched Robin Hood with. This is our other <laughs> set of grandparents. I have to clarify that. Um, many movie, many of the best movies we ever watched were in the basement of our grandparents. Apparently, basements of our grandparents, plural. Yeah. Um. So the Truman Show was kind of one of these things because, uh, I. Always saw I like I for years had seen the cassette in their collection, and I was like, oh, it's an adult show, right? Because like it wasn't like colorful or like brightly animated or whatever. So like I just assumed that it must be an adult film. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's fine. That's for the adults, whatever. Um, but then I th- don't remember how old I was. I think I must have been. Was it when we were living with them? I feel like it must have been. So I probably was like between the ages of twelve and fourteen. Yeah. And like I just I remember like pulling the cassette out one day, looking at the back, realizing it was PG. I was like, oh, I can I can watch this. Like because <laughs> you know, us being uh pretty evangelical uh LDS church members, we are we're very strict about that kind of thing in our household. Um uh-huh. but I was like, Oh, it's PG, I can watch it, no problem. And I watched it and I was blown away by it. Like I wasn't I don't like I think what it was is not that like I wasn't expecting it to be good. Like I didn't at that age I didn't really have a concept of like a good film versus a bad film, right? Mm-hmm. It was just like I was able to realize and connect with the th- the themes in the film really like pretty easily. Like I was able to grasp like kind of the heavier implications of all of it and I was like m- mind blown, right? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And it's just, it's a really great film. Um and like it also it paired really really well with its uh, match on the bracket, which is the Stepford Wives 1975. In this idea that everyone around you, everyone that you love and trust, is out to get you, which is yeah. a really fascinating idea in horror. It's almost like mm-hmm. uh, 
what's what's the capgrass delusion where you like you think that everybody around you is replaced with replicas like it's Mm -hmm. it's a real like um visceral fear for a lot of people and i think that it's really effective yeah well and i think it's it's very similar to like some philosophical questions that you get to uh, especially now that we have had a lot of philosophers behind us, right? Uh, it's it's kind of similar to the uh, brain in a vat concept, right? Uh, how do you know what around you is real? How can you tell what's, you know, when the cracks show, how do you know that it's not just you, right? Yeah, exactly. Those, right, are, all like... things, those are all things that Truman in the show has to deal with because he's being um actively gaslit by literally everybody around him yeah by every single person in his life yep which is yeah it's crazy (laughs) yeah it's so good um but i think what uh what manages to always stand out to me when watching this movie is truman's sincerity um jim carrey does this thing right where i always have known him as being a very silly weird actor uh and then he comes into this movie and he plays very a very sincere truman it's also like a very understated performance like it's still comedy but he's Uh like he's nuanced in his portrayal of truman and it's like it's great Yeah. yeah and then it also has something to say about the way that we perceive media figures mm-hmm. uh, the way that we look at people on in the news and we flatten them literally like on a tv screen they're mm-hmm. they don't you know they have this one agenda or this one idea and that's all you know they're very two-dimensional characters mm-hmm. um that are these people who are actually living their lives so in what ways are we looking at people on television or in the news or on social media nowadays and how are we flattening their life to fit what they're presenting to us mm-hmm. yeah right? and that's that's of, another really interesting aspect of this film is that like we were like we had parasocial relationships with celebrities at this point because this film came out mm-hmm. in what the 90s maybe the early 2000s 1998 1998 okay yeah so we had been having parasocial relationships and this was like something that people were noticing. Um, I think one of the places it was noticed most was in when it came to um, like s- endorsements by uh, sporting celebrities, just cause mm-hmm. like the NBA was like getting really, really big at the time. Yeah. But like, bef- this was still before we had this discussion, this discussion in this term parasocial relationship, yeah. that, which is so handy to use in these kinds of conversations now. Um, and it's kind of wild to see how much the Truman Show predicted so many elements of, like, the parasocial social media influencer world that we have now, right? Yeah. Well, I think, too, about, um, there's this one YouTube video that I'll ha- have to send you, if you've never seen it, by Tom Scott, where he talks about YouTube copyright. Mm-hmm. No, I'm thinking of the wrong one. I'm thinking uh, um when he talks about he talks about advertising on television. Yeah, 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 yeah. How like he well, he compares it to uh like YouTuber advertising, right? And how they they have to very clearly say this is an advertisement or you know they have to put it in it's like make sure that people know 
that they're being paid to endorse this product. And that's not a thing everywhere else in the industry. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing on television. That's not a thing on in movies, right? When someone looks at a watch in a movie and goes, oh, that's very nice. What is it? It's, it's a Rolex. Mm-hmm. Uh, that isn't that it, they don't say this is an advertisement, but it's kind of endorsement, right? Mm-hmm. They're able to blur the lines, uh, and they do that. They do that very obviously in the Truman Show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like when when he's out drinking with his buddy, and his buddy is like, "Oh, this beer is the best," right? <laughs> Truman's or just when like, his "Oh my!" Wife is pitching the cereal at breakfast, <laughs> and he's just like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, uh, he's he's just like, "Oh, this is kind of weird," but yeah. it's clearly t- to an audience that Truman is completely unaware of. Mm-hmm. So that leads to, I think, the most important point of the Truman Show, uh, which is uh, like living the the ability to live your own life, right? To have that agency to live life the way that you want to live it, um, and how much control other people have over your life from large companies, right? That are trying to get all these little kids, right? I'm going off top. I'm totally off on a tangent right now. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, keep going. <laughs> You've almost brought it back. You're almost there. Uh, yeah, this idea that Truman is his own person. Mm-hmm. And he's, is he really living a, lo- a good life? That's actually something that's key uh, when they talk. Uh, the one guy, what's his name? Kristoff. Uh, the creator. Yeah, the director, yeah. It's kind of like got this god complex, right? Mm-hmm. Like talking to Truman with this big voice in the sky at the end, yeah. right? Um, uh, he has kind of this uh, mentality that Truman's living a great life. He's living, you know, a good life. Mm-hmm. But is it his life? Yeah, Are the decisions that he's making his, mm-hmm. right? It, yeah, and it's it's done. It's it's told so poetically that like even if you have the best life in the world if it's not a life that has been chosen by you for you then it's not going to be a happy one and it's like it's such a hard thing like especially when we're i don't know i've been reading a lot of reddit lately (laughs) and so like you get like in these like best of redditor updates posts like you'll get so many like I don't know, like, deranged family members, like, thinking that they know best for, like, the OP or whatever, and, like, doing, like, so many awful things, like, to get them to fall into the life that they think that they should want to lead. Mm -hmm. It's never going to work out because it's not the life that they have chosen. They need to be able to choose it organically and, like, like, otherwise, nobody is going to be happy, right? It's... And... Like, I think it speaks to a really deep and almost primitive part of the human psyche Uh that you have to let other people fight and, like, choose their own battles. You have to let other people make decisions for themselves because otherwise they're not going to be happy. Yeah, I think that's why that scene at the end of the movie is so impactful because he is choosing at the very end of the movie... Mm-hmm. To go and live his own life, and you know the uh, the giant voice under the sky, booming voice says, "You know this is everything you could ever want. You are ha- you have fame. You know he has more probably has more money than he would ever know to, know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, he has you know this life where everyone is friendly and nice to him. 
right? Everyone lo- lo- loves him. Literally, the whole world loves him. Mm-hmm. Why would he want to throw that all away? And to live a life of uncertainty, to mm-hmm. live a life where he doesn't know what's going to happen next. Uh, and yeah, and a life where he, he chooses that life, right? Because mm-hmm. it's his. It's his life. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's so beautifully done. It's so good. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, nice. Truman Show is a great film. And I haven't seen it in a little while, but I really should watch it again because it's really amazing. That one's going up against one that I have not seen. That's right, yes. Um. So, um, have you heard of The Stepford Wives at all? I think so. I've at okay. least seen it on here, right? Sure, yeah. Um. So, okay, let me explain to you a little bit about it. Um. Well, I guess we should do the explanation, and then I can do my real explanation. Okay, The Stepford Wives is a satirical feminist horror novel. By, <laughs> oh, excuse me, never mind, it's, this is the book. I, um, I saw the same thing, uh, yeah. but I found that, I'm assuming it's the 2004 movie that you want? No, it's the 1975 one. Okay, it's the 1975 one. I haven't okay. seen the 2004 one. Um, I, I watched the okay. 1975 on, I don't know, Tubi? It was one of those ones where it's free with a bunch of ads. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the ni- the Stepford Wives is a 1975 satirical psychological thriller film directed by Brian Forbes, uh, written by William Goldman, based off the screenplay, uh, based the screenplay off of the 1972 novel by yes. Ira Levin. Um, stars Catherine Ross, Paul Apprentice, Peter Marston, or Masterson, excuse me, Nanette Newman, Tina Louise, Patrick O'Neill. I know none of those people. I don't know 70s films. The main character in this film is Joanna. She lives in New York City with her husband and her two children. Uh, and she, at the very beginning of the film, she, uh, it, it's this really beautiful haunting. Like, as they're playing the opening credits, it just starts with a close-up of her sitting in, like, a picture window uh-huh. um, with, like, a seat. And it slowly pulls out, and you realize that the room is empty, and you slowly realize that the entire apartment is empty because they're moving. Um, but it really instills in you this sense of sadness and isolation that is going to follow Joanna through most of the rest of this film. Mm-hmm. She is very sad to be leaving New York. She's a very, um, like, even as a young mother, she's very independent. She's very outspoken. Yeah, and like, she's just, like, I love Joanna's character. I think. Like, even being written and directed by men in this film, like, Joanna's character is, like, so nuanced. She's great. Anyway, um, so Joanna and, but for work, her husband is moving to Stepford, Connecticut. So they all move to Stepford. And um, as they're living in Stepford, Joanna begins to make um, both friends and enemies with the other wives in the community. Um, She kind of gets on the wrong side of the um what's the name carol or her neighbor carol who's kind of like the posse leader for these women in this town um but she does make uh, Mm -hmm. rachel mcadams for mean girls yeah exactly she's kind of like the leader of the mean girls right i want to stress Um, that i have never seen mean girls (laughs) uh joanna does also make like an actual friend whose name is bobby um they kind of share like these you know kind of feminist ideas like they like talking and they're like very opinionated and things like this um and they kind of organize this like feminist book club basically and they're all 
uh, getting together. Um, but they have a really, really hard time getting the other wives to come to it, right? And even when mm -hmm. they can get the other wives to come to it, they're just talking about, like, how wonderful their husbands are, how great they are. Um, like, these things like that. Not not really appropriate for this kind of, like, feminist meeting, right? Yeah. Um, but, so, even as this is happening, um, Joanna tries to, like, when, when it fails that she's kind of unable to make a lot of friends in the town... Joanna tries to turn to her husband for some comfort, um, but finds that he is also pulling away for reasons that she is not really able to articulate. Um, mm -hmm. Spoilers for what I'm about to say. Uh, if you have no idea what the Stepford Wives is, <laughs> um, uh, eventually it is revealed that Joanna's husband has joined the local men's club. Um, but the whole thing that this men's club has been doing, uh, one of them, this is so funny and so specific. One of them used to work at Disney World as an Imagineer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what he's done to a bunch of the men's wives in town is they have uh, killed and replaced the wives with these animatronic uh, copies, basically, that are sexually submissive to the husbands, that are obedient in like doing the housework and taking care of the kids and doing everything that the husband wants, basically, right? Okay. Um, like an incel's dream. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, like, as Joanna is kind of doing the work to uncover uh, her husband's role in all of this, she uh, realizes very quickly that, like, all of the wives in town have been replaced. And the horror starts coming in when one night she goes to visit her friend Bobby. She, at this point, has realized what has happened, and she wants to try to make a run for it. But mm -hmm. when she goes to Bobby for help, she realizes that Bobby has also been replaced. Um, and so... Uh, like, there's this very crazy scene where, like, like Bobby is, like, begins malfunctioning. I think she accidentally gets water on the animatronics, so, like, she starts, like, spinning in the kitchen and, like, hitting her head with pots and pans and stuff. It's really um, frightening. Um, and then, uh, like, it's just this, like, tense ending scene where Joanna is hunted down so that she can be killed and replaced with her own submissive replica, right? Uh -huh. Um, there are so many interesting elements to this film. <laughs> Sorry, go can ahead. I tell you, can I tell you what this sounds like? Mm -hmm. uh, this sounds like what Don't Worry Darling was supposed to be. Yeah, exactly, right? I have like... not seen that movie, by the way. Um, I have read all of the drama about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually I read the Blacklist screenplay for Don't Worry Darling, and it's very similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it's got that kind of the same vibes, right? Yeah. So in the Blacklist script for Don't Worry Darling, there's a point where Florence Pugh's character wakes up and uh, realizes that um, she's forgotten her old life. She used to be like, so they're living in like far future, right? So yeah, um, they're living in this simulation of this 1950s town. Uh, Florence Pugh wakes up from the Matrix simulation that it is basically realizes that her husband has done this so that he can make her into a submissive wife where she used to be this really great like astrophysicist she used to be like this great thing and like she's her trying to escape her husband in the matrix and escape his basement where he's been keeping her so that she can go out and live her life again very yeah. similar themes right it's this <clears throat> idea that there, there's several ideas here the um you know the natural horror in uh, feminist like critique based media critique that um like be all that you're good for is being 
like a wife and a mother and not being able to have your own opinions and your own thoughts, even though you are a fully formed human being. Um, and like kind of the horror of being betrayed by the person that is supposed to love you the most. Right. Um, when yeah. I first watched the Stepford wives, uh, right. Excuse me. Right around the same time I was reading Coraline and I found a lot of similar themes in that, in that like, you know, these people that are supposed to love and care for you the most are the ones that are going to betray you first. Very yeah. scary stuff. Um, like I said, you know, with the Truman Show, there's a lot of, <laughs> apparently when, I don't know if it was when the book first came out or when this first came out, like, feminists at the time didn't really like it. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think it so perfectly speaks to, like, what women are trying to escape. Yeah. In like it in terms of, you know, wanting liberation, in terms of wanting equality. Mm-hmm. Um I'm doing a lot of feminist films. Hooray. <laughs> I just sort randomly had that thought, sorry. Sort hmm? of symbolically kind of the the horrific scenario of a housewife, right? Mm-hmm. Uh kind of being wanted only uh, for what for you can do for people, yeah, yeah, gratifying purpose, and then other than that, you're not really an entity unto yourself. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, reading the Wikipedia pages, this initial reaction to the film by feminist groups was not favorable, with one studio screening for feminist activists being met with hisses, groans, and guffaws. Cast and crew disagreed with the perceived anti-woman interpretations. With Newman recalling, uh, Brian Forbes, the director, always used to say, "If anything, it's anti-men." Like. <laughs> Yeah, guys, like, yeah. like, yeah, I, I think that this honestly is a feminist masterpiece that has been slept on. I don't, I haven't seen the 2004 version. I've heard mixed things about that one too. I wonder maybe if it's just like the direction. Um, mm-hmm. But I really liked this film and I really, like, it's just such a, like, it's not really trying to like change anybody's mind. I don't think necessarily. I. It's just, mm-hmm. it n- knows the potential horror of the scenario, you know, this wife who's this independent, young, successful wife whose husband is trying to silence her and turns it into a very effective horror concept. And I think it works great. <laughs> okay, so of these two, which one do you think would go forward? I I, I think it's going to be the Truman Show. Um, okay. Just because it does have that extra layer. Like, as much as I like Joanna as a character, I think the Truman Show takes the character a little bit deeper mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a little bit more contemplative whereas the Stepford wives is kind of like it's pretty straightforwardly a thriller so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. that's fair the man from uncle i love this I, it's stupid how much i like this one i <laughs> genuinely um going through all of these films like so many of them have just been like me describing my first time watching it and like how it like altered my brain chemistry forever um this is another one of them. <laughs> um, so uh the man from uncle is a 2015 spy film directed by guy ritchie uh, written by guy ritchie and lionel wigram based off of the 1964 television series of the same name uh starring Henry Cavill, Army Hammer, Alicia Vikander, Elizabeth Debicki, Jared Harris, and Hugh Grant. Um, lots of fun people. Lots of famous people. Good stuff. Um, so I remember when I first saw this film, I was 
in college i was in my second year of college i think and i was like horrifically depressed this is like the year before i dropped out or like the months leading up to when i dropped out of college for the second time um mm -hmm. and i like i i don't know i had done my class and i was just like i do not want to do anything today so i called out sick from work and i went to the theater and i was the only person in the entire theater i got like one of those um so like i got myself one of those like heated recliner seats and i like just laid it out and i just sat back and i let the movie take me and it was the also the very first film i ever saw with dolby atmos amazing if, if you've never seen a film with dolby atmos it's so good <laughs> it sounds so pretty um and i just had a blast watching this film uh have you seen this film at all I have not actually seen this film. You keep telling me to watch no, it. You should watch it. Uh, I might advance this film just to get you to watch it. Oh my um, gosh. Well, um, considering this the is... other film that this is up against, I think this one's going to go ahead anyway. So. Okay. so yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm so sorry for making you watch good films, Joshua. Come on. Well, either, way with <laughs> it, either way with this one, I would need to watch one. So. Yes, it's true. Um... Yeah, it's really, it's honestly, I'm upset because this, like, it didn't get very good reviews and, like, it totally bombed at the box office. There's no way they're making a uh -huh. sequel to it. I want a sequel anyway, Guy Ritchie. <laughs> Give me one, please. I know you Army Hammer has gone off the deep end. You can recast him. I don't care. Uh <laughs> do you think, do you think, uh, Henry Cavill would come back for it? I think he would. Um, I don't know. Henry Cavill likes fun things as far as i can yeah, tell that's fair and like as long as he had fun making this film like i have no idea i haven't watched any of the making of stuff for this so i probably should have by now anyway uh <laughs> so this film is about um henry cavill plays Napoleon solo and army hammer plays Ilya kriakin who are a cia agent and like a kgb agent respectively and it, during the height of the Cold War, they are recruited by an international organization called UNCLE um, to discover some missing, like, Nazi something or others. Like, I think it's, like, nuclear weapons, basically. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, so the KGB and the FBI, even at the height of the Cold War, are going to work together to try and get this stuff out of the hands of the Italian fascists. Uh -huh. Um, and so they're like, okay, well, just this once we're going to work together and we're going to get this stuff out of their hands. <laughs> um, but also like they're each going to try to be getting it for their own side because like, of course they're spies. Of course. The other, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. So, uh, Alicia Vikander plays a, uh, German mechanic whose father was, uh, one of these Nazi scientists who, uh, turned over to the United States at the end of world war two. Uh, okay. so they both go to retrieve her. And uh, then they are forced to work together on this mission where they're going to go get these nuclear weapon plans from uh, the Italians, uh, which include Elizabeth Debicki. Like, she's married to the Italian man, right? And she's kind of the mastermind behind everything. Yeah, I'm just going to rapid fire uh, good points of this film and convince you to watch it. Okay. Um, the, I mean, I have to now, right? Well, yeah, now you have to, because I'm going to advance it no matter what you say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, number one is the relationship between Henry Cavill and Army Hammer's characters is so funny. Like, they start out so antagonistic together, and by the end, they're bros. 
and uh -huh. I love it. It's so much fun. Um, there's kind of a cute little side romance. Like it's very, very hinted at. It's not really ever made explicit. Um, mm -hmm. but a cute little side romance hinted at for uh, Army Hammer and Alicia Vikander's characters that is so cute in a way that like I have no real words for. Um, it's a they're very cute together. I like them a lot. Um, uh, number three, heist. There's like two different heists. Yeah, more heist stuff after they start actually working together. There's like a great heist reveal where you think that something is going wrong, but actually twist it was going right the whole time. This was the plan. Ha 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 ha. Nice. Um, always, always a classic of... Always a classic, right? Yeah. Um, I wish I knew why this bombed at the box office. Because I had so much fun watching it. Like, uh -huh. Yeah. Like nice. I just it, it's just a fun film. I like it a lot. You should yeah. watch it. Okay, and then the one it's going up against is Ocean's Eleven, which is the OG yes. of heist films. Uh this is Are you are you referring to the original Ocean's Eleven? No. Or are you referring to the more recent Ocean's yeah, Eleven? Yeah, the more recent one. The one the first one starring like George Clooney and Brad Pitt. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the year was. 2001, maybe? Matt Damon. All the famous people. All famous people, yeah. Um, I've tried watching the Ocean's Eleven from the 1960s a couple times. Uh -huh. It's not as fun. It's mostly just the brat pack standing around <laughs> in suits talking in, like, Brooklyn accents. It's kind of boring. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I was right. 2001, American heist comedy film directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Ted Griffin, uh, starring... Are you ready for this list of famous people, Josh? Yes. George Clooney, Matt Damon, mm -hmm. Andy Garcia, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Casey Affleck, Scott Can, Elliot Gould, Bernie Mac, Carl Reiner. Wow. Uh, and there's some others that weren't included on that initial list. Uh, Don Cheadle, Eddie Jemison. Uh, mm. Yeah, lots of good people. Nice. Siegfried and Roy have a cameo. I forgot about that. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like everybody that knows about Ocean's Eleven has seen Ocean's Eleven already. Is there anything we need to explain? Uh, Danny Ocean uh, had a wife. That wife is now broken up with him and is dating this really famous casino owner. Uh, he wants to get back with this casino owner for getting with his wife, so he plans a heist. And it's the greatest heist anybody's ever planned, and it's wonderful. And they rob basically the entire Las Vegas Strip. Uh, yeah, have you, you seen this one? I have seen the first half of this one. You've never seen the second half? What? Because let me, this is my little secret about this movie. Oh, okay. I kind of wasn't into it. Oh, no. <laughs> it kind of bored me a little bit. Okay, that's fair. I, I guess I get it. Because um, uh, it's, it was, you know, the, obviously I didn't actually wait until they got into the heist because yeah. then it would have gotten exciting, right? Mm -hmm. Then it would have been better. But like, I was just kind of like, there's a lot of characters, and I don't really like Care connect about any of them. to any of them. Yeah, they're kind of no, busy. Okay. Uh, they're kind of busy just like informing us that there are characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I get that. Um, Rewatching heist films can sometimes get a little bit stale because of this. Um, I really liked the Italian job the first couple of times I saw it, but, like, as I've gotten mm -hmm. older, like, the more I find the characters are kind of, like, lay flat to me. And Ocean's Eleven kind of does the same thing, too. Like, it's just them, like, just, like, being guys, like, planning a heist, right? <laughs> like... Yeah. Um, and 
I will admit to you, I've never seen Ocean's 12 or Ocean's 13 all the way through because I have the exact same problem. I just get really bored about it. But I can make it through mm -hmm. Ocean's 11 for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the great thing about Ocean's 11, kind of what cemented it in the film canon and kind of like kickstarted this whole new like genre of like heist. This is kind of when heist movies became like codified as a genre right was oceans 11 the first one um and it's the twist at the very end so um i apologize if you were ever going to finish the film i'm assuming that you're not going to so i'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you anyway i i do know the the um you know the ending i know the ending because i'm an avid reader of all things wikipedia so you know the ending then it's that um like built like a whole other like a fake thing to like mm -hmm. totally fool the guy right and like it was so much more elaborate than you would have originally thought yeah that was, was the like, twist was that it was it was way bigger than you were anticipating or expecting it to ever be mm -hmm. exactly yeah and it's just yeah it's a lot of fun um that like if you got halfway through it and you thought it was boring then i can't really convince you otherwise so i mean i think it's actually uh, <laughs> on our list so mm-hmm on Kendall's and I's on list. Kendall's and yours list. Okay, that's fun. Um, we'll watch it eventually. Now for two movies that I have seen. Hooray! So I can actually comment on these ones. That's good. Um, yeah. So our last mashup is uh, World War II films, I guess. Uh, Jojo Rabbit versus Grin the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Honest, ha surprisingly heartfelt films out of one of the bleakest moments in American history or in American in world, in history. world history. Yeah, yeah. Jojo Rabbit is a 2019 comedy drama film written and directed by Taika Waititi, icon. Um, adapted from Christine Lunin's 2008 book *Caging Skies*. Stars Roman da Griffin Davis, Thomason McKenzie, Taika Waititi, Rebel Wilson, Stephen Merchant, Alfie Allen, Sam Rockwell, and Scarlett Johansson. So the whole conceit of this film is that um, uh, Jojo is this young boy who uh, is living in uh, war-torn Germany right towards the end of the war. And he is a Nazi fanatic. <laughs> yeah, basically, he's kind of like he's joined the Hitler Youth. He's all things Hitler, really. He's like mm -hmm. number one fan of yeah, this like very he, bad leader. He's totally bought into the propaganda that's being peddled. Yes. Right, he is. He thinks the Führer is the coolest guy in the world, and this fanatical worship of Hitler has turned into uh, his imagining that Hitler is his best friend. Like his uh, imaginary friend is Hitler, right? Played yes by Taika Waititi in an amazing performance. His performance is so funny. It's so good. And so uh, the film follows Jojo as he uh, is participating in Hitler youth activities, accidentally grenades himself and is sent home due to his injuries. Um, and then is just like trying to find his own purpose and like how he fits in with the things. If he can't like be a good soldier. Right. Um, and it's uh, as he's at home doing his little moping thing, he discovers that his mother has hidden a young Jewish girl in their attic. This causes some consternation for Jojo, obviously, because, like... Uh, he kind of talks to his, like, squadron commander, who is played by, um... Sam Rockwell. Very good. Sam Rockwell, I love yes. Sam Rockwell, yeah. Every performance in this movie does exactly what it needs to. It's perfect. So good. So good. Uh, so, and, like, Sam Rockwell is kind of, like, 
Oh yeah, he's just like a little boy making up fantasies, and so he oh, tells yeah. him to like st- he like kind of inspires him to start making or keeping like a journal idea of the That's perfect right, way to yeah. like catch this, these Jews. And then along the way, he ends up like getting a little. I'm not gonna say he falls in love because he doesn't, right? But he gets sort of like the boyhood crush on her, mm-hmm. and then that ends up being what enables them to start building a relationship. And then that's ultimately, you know, is the relationship that he has with her as a friend is what keeps him from turning her in. No, exactly right. And so, like, he's, like, starts bonding with this girl a little bit more. And it's all about Jojo learning how to challenge his internal beliefs and how to change his mind. And it's beautifully done. And the way that you see this film, the way that this film portrays it the most starkly is in his relationship with his uh, imaginary friend, Hitler, right? Um, You see, like, Hitler kind of stays the same as the imaginary friend throughout the whole thing. But as uh, Jojo begins to grow and change, you see that his perception of Hitler is becoming more and more, Mm -hmm. um, like, close to what we would recognize as the real thing, right? Because at the beginning, like, he's kind of goofy. He talks about, like, like there's something about unicorns at the beginning. Like I think he wants to eat a unicorn. Um, like all like little boy fantasies, right? Um, yeah. But as he grows older and continues to um, deconstruct this Nazi propaganda in his mind, uh, he starts seeing uh, Adolf in his mind as much more violent. Um, and a lot more sinister too. Like those are some sinister, of the definitely yeah. Kind of the creepy moments are when uh, there's this turn. And that's, I think that's where Taika's performance is really, really good. Is that, you know, he's he's able to portray this very goofy, ridiculous Hitler uh, turning into the violent, uh, antagonistic um, leader of Nazi Germany that he was known as. And who he was outside of the propaganda, right? The way... Um... Jojo is able to dissect his inner, um, like his his conflicting uh, ideals versus like the truth that he is learning by being mm-hmm. taught by Elsa that like she is a person and that she is worth protecting and that you know the, all of this dogma that uh, Adolf has been pushing onto the German people for so long is uh, degrading not only Jojo himself but like their society as a whole yeah. and it's beautiful um (laughs) yeah and i'm gonna come in here so many people got so mad about taika waititi portraying adolf hitler it's not an actual portrayal of hitler it is this little boy's portrayal of hitler hitler is not supposed to be cool well he he is supposed to be cool in like the beginning of the film but as you watch his um image of adolf degrade so significantly that there's Mm -hmm. no room for interpretation at the very end that Adolf is insane and Jojo literally kicks him out of his life. Yeah. <laughs> out of a window. He defenestrates him, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, other parts of this film that I really like, I really like Sam Rockwell's character. Like, not just, like, as a funny <laughs> character, right? Yeah, uh-huh. But he's... <laughs> like, I mm-hmm. think that's part of the thing, right, is uh, we're seeing this time of an amazing amount of chaos and confusion through the eyes of a young boy. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing 
especially as he grows up, right? Because this is the story of Jojo growing up and becoming a man and mm-hmm. becoming and like learning kind of to accept the complication of these the aspects of life that are at first very simple. Uh, we first, I think, I think, what's his name? What's the um, Captain yeah, Captain Klenzendorf is maybe the most interesting character in here because right from the start we see how disillusioned he is with the nazi regime totally right like he went off to war and he got like i think what is it his leg shot off for it so he i i know that he's like blind in one eye that's it yeah he's, maybe, yeah like he walks with a limp i don't think he has like a fake leg but i think he has I think, like, I think, an injury I think he in walks the leg. with a limp yeah yeah like he was and like he's been brought back and he's kind of in charge of teaching these children but like it's so clear that he wants to prevent these children from buying into the dogma while also like being forced to teach the dogma yeah. like under the threat of the other nazis being there like uh-huh. rebel wilson's character for example yeah um, like that part that part at the very beginning when they're at the uh hitler youth camp and they're like having a fun time throwing the books into the fire and it's like this horrific fanatic yeah it's almost like uh disassociative right where you see these little children like being so cruel and like hateful and you see that he has the same reaction to this and so i think that helps you really connect with him kind of immediately right because he's looking at this and going this is disturbing this is gross no totally right yeah you can see that in his eyes and, like, he's demoted after Jojo injures himself at this camp, and you get to watch him, like, give Jojo, like, these tasks to do, right? Like, these little things so that mm-hmm. he feels included. Um, at the insistence of Jojo's own mother, who it is later revealed is, like, an anti-Nazi, um, like, ally, basically. Like, she's, yeah, she's working part with of the German resistance. Resistance, yeah. Yeah. And but like she trusts Klensendorf enough to be able to like turn daily care of Jojo over to him so that he can like continue like feeling like Mm -hmm. he belongs in this society that is so hateful, right? Because like what other society is he going to join? Like he lives in this place, he has to like learn how to do all of these things despite the environment that he's growing up in. And Klensendorf Mm -hmm. is such a good little beacon for that. He's so fascinating and like. Like just the ending too, and oh, uh, hmm. uh, the way that every single other character character interacts with everyone else. But mm-hmm. I think ultimately the thing that really makes this movie is the fact that Taika Waititi has such a hand in it. He um, really does, yeah. I think we may have talked about this before, but I think the thing that makes Taika Waititi's films so impactful is that he's able to take the humor of everyday life and apply it to situations where you have heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And you have moments of despair. Uh, those are in every single movie that he's made, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at least the ones that I've seen. I the only ones that I haven't seen are Boy and Eagle versus Shark. Um, but right, like he he's so good at or uh, he's so good at making these moments that are kind of the humor comes from a place of everydayness. Mm-hmm. Right, like this is the humor that you can find if you're looking for it in your life. Yeah. The kind of ridiculousness, the silliness that is in life, but also the tragedy that's in life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what why this is so special is that it is able to 
express Jojo Bessler's life. And yeah, it's wonderful. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I have nothing else to say about that. It's beautiful. Great, uh, great film. Yeah. Very good film. Extremely good film. Uh, and then <laughs> it's going up against another war film. Kind of different. This one's interesting, right? Because this one's directly post-war. That's true, yeah. So, like, this one is uh, directly post-war, whereas Jojo Rabbit is, like, very, very end of war. Like, mm-hmm. it, it the film ends, like, right as uh, the American occupation rolls in. Um, yeah. Whereas this one is uh, kind of based in the... Kind of... It, it, it hops around a little bit. Because um, mm-hmm. you've got... Mm-hmm. What well, what's interesting about it is that like it's the setting itself, right? With the main character is set post World War II, mm-hmm. but it, every single character, all of the stories that they're telling, have influence directly from World War II. Like everything is taking place during World War II, and so you get this kind of thing where it's like. Uh, sort of recovery, right? They're trying to move past what's happened. Uh, and that's part of why it takes so long for them to open up about what actually did happen during World War II. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, okay, so let's let me read this. Uh, the Grinzy Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society is a 2018 historical romantic drama film directed by Mike Newell, written by Kevin Hood, Don Roos, and Tom Bezucha. The screenplay is based off of the 2008 novel of the same name, written by Marion Schaefer and Annie Barrows, uh, starring Lily James, My- uh, Michelle Huseman, uh, Glenn Powell, Jessica Brown Finley, Catherine Parkinson, Matthew Good, Tom Courtney, uh, Penelope Wilton, Nicola Passetti, etc. So, uh, in like Josh said, there's kind of two different threads, right? You've got um, in 1946, directly post-war, um, Lily James plays. Uh, an author, Juliet. Uh, there was a man on Guernsey who uh, came into possession of a copy of Charles Lamb's Essays of Elia, and it was her copy. Uh, so, like, he has her like information, and so he he contacts her and he's like, "Hey, can I buy? Do you know where I could buy another book by the same author?" Yeah. Okay, and, and then- he wants it for his book club, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Yeah, um, and so Julie sends, or Juliet sends a copy of this book and uh, asks him to tell her more about the society. Um, and eventually this correspondence turns into kind of like a pen pal friendship. And she eventually travels to Guernsey to meet the book club. And she learns about um, the conception of them during the war, kind of how this community banded together to survive the German occupation on the island. Um etc. Um, you've seen it more recently than I have, if you want to keep yes. making the explanation. Yeah, so, well, basically, um, well, what I think is interesting is at the beginning, she's kind of unsatisfied with her life uh, promoting her book because she's writing under a pen name. Uh, and she's also, like, she's not really in the whole writing life to make a life for herself. She's kind of, like, I would almost say that she's more like a journalist than an author almost Mm -hmm. because she's very interested in like other people's stories and this whole thing. Right. So so she goes and then she kind of starts like there's this Guernsey literary and potato peel pie society. Right. 
and she goes and she meets all the members and she kind of learns about this other member that's not there uh and they kind of don't talk about her and so she learns about this other person's life and it starts to unravel this whole story about what happened during the german occupation Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's really good like the way that it unravels i think is really uh it's really good storytelling um and it kind of takes a different look at uh morality and uh you know the individuals that are behind what happens during wartime right the other great thing is that uh glenn thomas powell jr also known as glenn powell plays her boyfriend from america uh the obvious this is a chick flick obviously uh Mm -hmm. she's going to break up with him for the much more attractive uh rural man on the island of course, obviously. But he's played by her boyfriend, who is an Air Force guy, is played by Glenn Powell. And the only things I have ever seen Glenn Powell in is army stuff. <laughs> like, I've only <laughs> ever seen him play a military man. That's so fun. Like, he was, yeah, Top Gun Maverick uh, Devotion. Yeah. <laughs> Top Gun Maverick Devotion. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. He's always, figures, he's always yeah. a military man. It's so funny to me. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. Like Beautiful. that's that's he I, I'm worried that he's, you know, been typecast in this role, but mm-hmm. he seems okay with it. He's getting a good paycheck. Yeah, good for him. He had a big role in Top Gun Maverick. But wait, that was not relevant to the story. I just thought it was so funny. <laughs> no, that's very funny. It's been a little while since I've seen this film. I do remember really liking it and I did really like the book as well. I read the book. Mm-hmm. Not when That's it first good. came out. Um, I think I did like a blind date with a book and this is the book that I received and I was like, oh, oh that's nice. fun. So, yeah. That's good. That's a good one. Nice. So, mm. since we've both seen this one, we might make a bit of a debate, but what do you think moves on? My gut is saying JoJo. Um, it might be because I've seen that more recently. Uh-huh. But... Like I do, like, I think it's a great film. Um, like not that I don't also love Guernsey Literary, but yeah, I don't know. Georgia just has that extra bit of a shine for me, you know. Mm-hmm. I agree. Guernsey Lit is great. I love it, but there's something about Georgia Rabbit. It's like just such a well put together story, and all of the actors kind of do their best to make it a phenomenal experience whenever you watch it that's true so yeah yeah so i think the one moves forward hooray we did it and now we're three-fourths of the way done through the first level of our bracket it's very good uh how are you feeling Uh, a little tired um i might actually i'm looking at the first four movies in on the next side of the bracket Mm -hmm. i think i'm gonna take those down and oh really okay i'm gonna look at all of the marvel movies again and then i'm gonna put them back up uh and see what comes up okay nice right so i think i think i might change it around i don't know though you know what that's fair um yeah do what you have to do man i'm not gonna judge you on any of it so i'll be honest i would i would rather put shang chi in this bracket than i would spider-man no way home no hey on spider-man no way home no same i think like no way home was good but like I, I don't know. It's almost good because of how much 
and like this has nothing to do with nostalgia, right? I have not seen the original Spider-Man movies. Uh, but it's like so much not just its own movie. No, exactly right. Like it's very the much ultimate Spider-Man movie. Yes, but as a film, it's kind of collapsing under that weight. <laughs> like a little bit. Yeah, like there's just like it's there's so much Spider-Man stuff that they have to do, <laughs> and it's such a limited time frame. I don't know. Like in terms of multiverse Spider-Man movies, there's no way that No Way Home lives up to Spider-Verse. Like I'm just gonna say that. I'm sorry. It's true. <laughs> it's because they didn't tie themselves down to the original Peter Parker myth. Like they got that out of the way immediately, and they went on to do the new stuff, which is great. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna toss that up and you know, kind of pull those four back out and um, put them back in, and then kind of draw them out again and see if I can get this in for. But that's all that we got for this week, folks. This. Uh, podcast episode was sponsored by onions and the fact that i watched holes the other day (laughs) (laughs) holes is a great film it's too bad we didn't make it on this list okay i i convinced kendall well i didn't mean not to convince her very hard but i was i told her that i was watching holes because it was one of the things that i was doing like after i got back home Mm -hmm. and she was like oh actually i haven't seen the movie but i have read the book Mm -hmm. and she asked me if like it was as good as if the uh, movie was like a good adaptation, if it was as good as the book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I think it is, but I haven't read the book in a long time. Yeah. And so I was like, so what we should do is we should start reading books. Mm-hmm. And then when they're done, we watch the, we watch the adaptation and see how they are. They all holds up like an English so, class. Oh, you yeah, guys are so we're going to do that. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, thanks for listening to Screenwalkers. Uh, you can view or show notes at our website, screenwalkerspod.com. Uh, And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening.